Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go out, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from the Mount Misar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with, with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust, an unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You may be seated. <clears throat> I ask for your prayers and your grace this morning. Um, when it comes time for suffering and it comes to mourning after suffering, uh, there's not many words that are accurate. There's not a right way to say things. There's not a right way to handle things. And so I'm just going to openly grieve as a pastor today and as a friend. So, so if you're looking for this deep theological dealing of suffering, you're not going to find it today. But if you want a friend, uh, a co-sheep, a co-shepherd who is walking with you in your suffering, whatever it may be, um, then you, you will have one today. You know, there are some sufferings that are so heavy that we have no words. What's there left to say? We've prayed day and night for healing. We've prayed for God to make His invisible purpose known to us. We've wept until our eyes are dry and red. And during such times, we're left completely speechless. And it's in moments like this, times in which we can barely stand, times in which we don't know what to say, times in which we're just at a loss for words, 
What, what can we say that would ever make this right? What can we say that will ever make the sufferer feel good or feel better or to take away their pain? So, so what could we do? It's in, in times like that that we're speechless, that, they're, that we have the Psalms who offer themselves as friends who can carry us. When we can't stand, the Psalms come in and hold us up. When we no longer have words to pray, the Psalms write our prayers for us. When we have no more strength to petition God and to question His work and why He has done what He has done, the Psalms take up the inquiry and they petition God on our behalf. Long after our tears have run out, long after our tears have dried up and we have none left, the Psalms continue weeping for us. As many of us have experienced, there are times as if it feels like God is silent. Maybe he's even hidden. And other times he feels like he has forgotten us. His plan is invisible. His purpose is painful. His ways are unexplainable. And when we find ourselves in those kinds of seasons because of grief, Psalm 42 and 43 come to our side like a faithful friend. As we groan under the weight of sorrow, as we stand by the hospital bed, as we stand beside the grave, as we look into the future with fear, Psalm 42 and 43 puts its hand on our shoulder and it whispers our inaudible groaning into words. It was just amazing. I, I, this this week, trying to figure out what do you preach after what this church and after what the Harps and Deaners have been through for the last 18 months. There's a lot of joyful text in the Bible. Like I said, we could have just continued tracking on in Matthew and acted like it was normal and we're moving on. We could have turned to some other hope-filled psalm. But as I started, I actually started sermon prep, started writing a sermon in Psalm 121 that's completely joyful, talks about God our keeper and, and, and how he'll keep you from evil. And I just found myself, even as a pastor, just for a moment thinking, but, but you didn't keep the innocent from evil at this point. It feels like you allowed evil to happen. So I, I kind of just asked God in that moment, can you give me a text that will preach itself? Because I don't, I don't have words to explain God. I don't have, I don't have theological treatises right now that can, that can, can iron out something that's not able or ever possible to iron out. I can't, I can't preach a text that shows how all this fits perfectly into God's plan. Because I'll just, I'll just tell you, there's things you don't know about Milo's story that are absolutely messy. It doesn't fit into our boxes of theology sometimes. And it was in that moment that God gave me Psalm 42 and 43. I feel like I could just read the psalm and then it puts into words what none of us know how to say. It's a psalm that will preach itself in the midst of our sorrow. It's refreshing to think that we have such a compassionate God that long before any of us in this room were alive, long before any of us lost a job, long before any of us lost a spouse, long before COVID-19, long before Milo was even thought of and born, that our God knew there would be times in our lives that we would feel as if He had forgotten us, as if He had abandoned us, and He Himself gave us the words to say in times like that. 
Psalm 42 and 43 is just as much God's inspired words, His words inscripturated, as any other text that you have in the Bible. And so our sovereign God, knowing that such moments would come, enabled the psalmist to write words like, Why have you forgotten me? And in this, God has compassionately, graciously, sovereignly taught us how we can approach Him with our raw, honest thoughts. We don't have to whitewash our prayers. We don't have to lift our heads up and put on a false bravado. We can come to God. And in moments like this, when we read Psalm 42, that seems to be specifically tailored to us and to our suffering. We can remember that we had a sovereign God who saw beforehand, who sovereignly plans, who sovereignly purposes, and yet knows that there will be times that we simply do not understand. We simply do not feel his presence. I may see, you, you may not have had a pastor say those kinds of things before. And that's why I want to take time and just point it out in Scripture because there are psalmists, spiritually inspired peoples, people that, that were inspired by God who could write those kinds of prayers and just be raw and open and say, I have no clue what God is doing in this. And it's absolutely okay. It actually honors God when we come to God with our raw emotions. It's the fake glory to God. It is, a, it is, a, it is insincere to come to God with these fake put-together emotions, saying, I know He has a plan in my suffering right now. Sometimes we know that, but we don't feel it, right? It's, it's, it's difficult for us because we feel like we have to put on our face, put on our makeup. I don't put on makeup, but still, we put on... We put on all these things to present ourselves before going out so that we, we have the right theological standing before suffering. And here you just see the psalmist with his messed up hair. hair. He's probably got bags under his eyes. He's unshaven. He's ratty. He's, he's probably smelly. He hasn't been able to, to get up off the floor from his grieving. And that is a picture of someone who truly worships God in suffering. So Psalm 42 and 43, just kind of give a backdrop to what this psalm is. It's the second book of the psalms. Uh, Most of you guys know that psalms can be broken up into five books. Well, the second book of the psalms were written mostly by David and the sons of Korah. Scholars believe that Psalm 42 and 43 were were originally one psalm that belonged together, and somehow over uh, church history they got split up into two. Somehow over church history, they were divided up, but they belong together, so we're going to treat them together. And just as a brief background of the authors, the sons of Korah were those commissioned by David to praise God day and night in the temple. They were the songwriters of the, of the Old Testament church. They were the ones that put theology into words, and, and you'd wake up early in the morning, and you'd hear the sons of Korah singing in the temple. And then you'd get through your mid-afternoon prayers and you'd hear the sons of Korah singing. They were the, the, the positive, encouraging radio of the day. You know, as you're walking through the streets of, of uh, Jerusalem, hearing these songs being sung from the temple. And their task was to teach God's people how to approach God. Now, in this section, it's interesting. Because a common theme in book two, where the sons of Korah and David are writing, the common theme is... This theme of suffering, of hardship, of the, of the oppression of the innocent, the suffering of the innocent. 
When David writes the Psalms, he's talking about him be, himself being an innocent sufferer who's oppressed because of other people's wickedness. You hear of uh, his prayers when the enemies surround him in Psalm 56. You hear his thoughts when he's on the run from Saul in Psalm 57 and 59. And then you hear his lament as he's living homeless in the wilderness of Judah in Psalm 62. And the underlying theme in all of that is suffering comes even to the innocent and the righteous, and yet the innocent and the righteous continue hoping in God alone. That's the common theme tying these psalms together. And Psalm 42 and 43 contributes to this theme by exploring the depths of sadness. My friends, we're going we're gonna to plunge into bitter waters today. We're going to be drinking and swimming deep and drowning in the tears of the psalmist a little bit, just to feel what he felt and to learn how God is even in the depths of the bitter waters of sorrow. I mean, David himself, right? If I go to the abyss, you are there. Well, we are going to the abyss. We're going to the dark night, to the bottomless pit of grieving. And yet we find even there, the Lord is not separated from his people. We don't know exactly what the psalmist was going through. We don't even know specifically who the psalmist is. We just know he belonged in the sons of Korah. Had he lost a wife who had battled with cancer for a long time? Had he tragically lost a child? Had a band of raiders kidnapped a loved one? Had, was Israel in famine? Was it a moment in time people had stopped giving to the temple and he no longer had a job and he had been told they had to downsize the priest? Whatever it was, this is a deep time of grieving. He feels this fully in his life. I think it's beneficial for us that we do not know exactly what he went through because this psalm is a one-size-fits-all for our suffering. Whether you've gone through a kidney stone, whether you've gone through a job loss, whether you're going through fear, whether you're plumbing, plunging the depths of a tragic loss, Psalm 42 and 43 puts into words all suffering. We know three things about the psalmist's context. He was in an extremely low season of life. He was surrounded by people who did not understand and who mocked him and who mocked his God, and he felt distant and even exiled from God. And so you can sympathize around some of those, some of those points. Some of you are in a low season of life. Some of you feel surrounded by people who taunt you in your faith. Some of you feel distant and exiled from God right now. And if that's you, these, these situations is what the, the author of this psalm is in. And the psalm can be broken up into three movements. And I, I'm spending some time in this backdrop because we've got to see how the psalmist moves through his grief. Movement number one, he deals with his honest panting for God. We, we're going to label that section drought. He feels like he is in a drought. And, and a lot of us that have experienced suffering can say that. We feel thirsty. We'll, we feel dry. We feel broken. We feel like we're in a desert, right? And then you get to movement number two, and his language changes from drought to drowning. Suddenly, the desert has become a flood. And, and we, we can sympathize with that image as well, right? And then in movement number three, he just feels lost and defenseless. And he says, honestly, have you, my refuge, rejected me? He prays for God's light and truth to guide him back because he's lost. He doesn't know where he is. He's disoriented in his grief. And throughout the whole psalm, you see this jump back from peace 
to pain, from sorrow to singing. And it goes back and forth. And that mingling of misery and mercy mingles together in biblical grief. The tears aren't just sweet, they're also bitter. And the bitterness is sweet. The same psalm that says, Hope in God, O my soul, is the same psalm that can also say, Why have you forgotten me? The same psalm that says, when will you see me? Why have you overlooked me? Can be the very same prayer that says, at night your song is with me. This is the reality of what grieving is like. It's not a black and white, I feel good today and I feel bad tomorrow. It's not like that. The psalmist shows us how a heart can be torn, how a heart can be divided over fear and faith, over pain and peace, over suffering and Silent singing. And you may be feeling that tearing inside of you today. Now the, the good news is, is for now, that is, our, that is our, uh, our lot, is to have this mingling of mercy and misery, of that pain and peace. But one day, when Christ returns, there will be only peace. There will be only mercy. There will be no more sorrow and only singing. But to get to that day, we go through these bitter waters knowing that right now, this time that we're in is sweetening that time, is getting us ready for that day. So if you're someone who's grieving, feel free to grieve with the psalmist today. You might not have gone through any significant suffering for the rest of you. You might not have lost anyone significant in your life. And and the worst thing that might have happened to you is that your grandmother's cat died. And if that's you... Learn from this psalm because you will still go through suffering someday in life, number one. And on that day, you will need to have a reservoir that you come to in the middle of the desert to get a drink. So, so hold on to this and remember this when that day comes. But it's also good for those of us who are learning how to help suffering people. None of us know what to do, do we? Do we hug? Do we not hug? Uh, now COVID's challenge made that even more complicated, Right. Do we send letters, or is that just going to reopen a wound? Do we, do we come up to them and say, I'm sorry for your loss, or I'm praying for you? What do we say? Because it's, it's difficult. People are different, right? My, my mom didn't want anyone to mention anything about suffering, about losing my little brother when he died. It, it just brought back, she wanted, she wanted just to move on, and it was done. She wanted everyone to forget about it. Um... And then there were days that she wanted people to remember. That's just natural grieving. And we as God's people have to be ready to walk with people who are suffering. And we've got to be ready to walk together in that. And we are those who are going to be suffering as well. And so this, we, we walk with people in the way that we want them to walk with us. Imagine your child passing. Imagine your spouse passing. One thing the church needs to learn more than anything is how to have a heart that feels for someone else. We are not empathetic people in the Western church. If it didn't happen to us, it stinks for them. We've, we've shown that in COVID. Well, it's only those people who are affected, not me. We've shown it in job losses. Well, those people are losing their jobs, but my job's secure. We have to have a heart that is affected and impacted by empathy. Uh, 
because that's how Christ came and stepped into our pain. He didn't have to be in on the cross. He didn't have to. Like, like, he didn't have to take on flesh and experience that pain. He could have, God in all of his, in all of his sovereignty could have transcended so high and far above that and not ever felt man's lament. And yet we have a God who empathetically takes on flesh to fill every cut, every bruise, every nail mark, every splinter from the cross so that we could have his peace. So my friends, just wherever you are, in suffering, not in suffering, either learn empathy or learn transparency today. Those are the two applications. Either learn how to empathize or learn how to be transparent with God in your grief. So the first movement, as I've already said, could be labeled as drought. The psalmist speaks of his grief as a drought of God's presence. He just says it very openly. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. O God, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So he sees himself as a deer who has been far from water. It's hot. It's dry. He's thirsty. He desperately needs something to satisfy this insatiable internal thirst. And anyone who's gone through any kind of significant suffering knows what it's like. It's like that, that inward ache inside of you, that, that frog inside of your chest, the uneasiness that refuses to settle down, the mind that keeps running, the heart that palpitates when you remember it, the stomach that churns, the throat that tightens, the eyes that sing, that sting, the, the hands that shake. We've, we've all been in moments like that if we've been through suffering. Some people sit and they stare off blankly into, into space, thinking deep thoughts and tumultuous thoughts. Some people pace and mumble to themselves. Some people talk to themselves when they're alone and they express their I don't understand what's happening, and I'm so angry about this. Some of us just lay in bed and don't feel like we can get up again. All of those are reactions that are like panting for cool water of God's comfort and peace. And anyone who has experienced this knows a taste of what the psalmist is like. That moment where the doctor knocks on the room door and he says, your test results are in. At that moment... Just in those brief few seconds, you know what that panting feels like. Your wife doesn't respond when you're in bed. You're waking up in the morning and, and she's, she's, her eyes are rolled back. She's convulsing a little bit and, and you don't know what's going on. At that moment, you feel that panting. You get a call from your son's best friend. Hey, your son has had an accident. And before he says whether it's okay or not, that brief moment from that being told your son has had an accident to he's okay or he's in the hospital, you feel that panting. That's, that's what this psalmist feels at this moment. Just this deep, gut-wrenching panting in this drought, longing for cool peace of God. And so in his thirst for God, he openly asks, when shall I come and appear before God? On the one hand, he could be simply saying, when am I going to get to go back to the temple again and worship? On the other hand, if you just roughly translate the Hebrew, he's actually saying this, when will God see me again? So in his deep grief, he feels overlooked by God. It's not him seeing God that he's worried about. It's God seeing him. He feels as if God has overlooked him, as God's eyes have passed over him. Now, 
At this moment, we might want to tell the psalmist, stop that. That's not true. Fix that wrong thinking, right? But imagine what would have happened if somebody would have come to the psalmist at that moment and tried to correct that. We wouldn't have had the rest of this beautiful psalm. This is a process he's going through. He's going to have to feel distant from God to see just how near God is to him. He's going to have to weep painful tears just to see the glory of those tears being wiped away from his eyes. He has to go through this process in order to see that even though God hasn't overlooked him, those feelings of being overlooked sweeten the moment when he finds out God's eyes have forever been on him. His lament continues, my tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? That phrase, my tears have been my food, comes in other psalms like Psalm chapter 80 verse 5, where it speaks of God's provision of bread. God has provided bread for his people, but it's not manna like it used to be. This is misery. This is the bread of tears. And in that phrase, we have this really deep brokenness of where God himself seems to have changed. He once was good to us, and now he is punishing us. He once was providing for us, and now we're receiving penalty from him. It, it, it feels as if the same God that had at one point given mercy, at one point had provided manna, now is giving bread of tears for us to eat. And the psalmist makes it clear. It feels like that's what I survive on is a food of tears. And in addition to this, wherever he is, he has enemies who take pot shots at him. He has enemies who question him. Enemies who question his God. The same thing happens sometimes in the lives of modern people. When we're not spared the layoffs or the cancer or the death of a loved one, occasionally hateful people will sometimes walk up insensitively, in, insensitive, with insensitivity in our grief and will say, where's your God now? What good did it do you? So, so much good your crutch did for you, right? We've, we've heard people say things like that before. And that's just a small picture of what this psalmist is getting. The world doesn't understand that our faith is not a promise of prosperity. It never has been. And this is the damage that this prosperity junk that's been passing around does to people. It does not prepare them for real life. Faith is not a promise of prosperity. We bleed just like everybody else. We cry just like everyone else. If we get hit by a two-ton Mack truck, we will die just like everyone else. We are not bulletproof people. And yet, the difference between us and a non-believer is that when we bleed, when we get hit by the two-ton Mack truck... We have hope that that is not the end of life, that that is not the final chapter. You see, for the world, without Jesus, suffering's just suffering. Everybody suffers. Everybody dies. Everybody loses a loved one. Everyone loses something or hurts in some way or bleeds in some way. That is just normal to the human experience in a fallen world. The difference between us and a sufferer without Jesus is we know that our suffering is effectual. Our suffering is remembered by God. Our suffering will end and resurrection will be culminated and climax in Jesus Christ. That's what we have. We have hope in the midst of grief. 
So along with his thirst for God, his tears and the taunts of the enemies, the psalmist remembers the better days that were in the past. He thinks back, these things I remember in the midst of his grief, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in a procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So he's thinking back on the good old days. He's just like the widow who just lost her husband, and she's looking back on all the pictures and remembering and laughing at all the memories, but then comes the wave of sadness that those memories are no more, that those moments are not to come anymore. They look back and they see the evidence of the vacations that they took together and only to remember that there's no more traveling plans together. It's that weeping and that brokenness. The psalmist looks back and he goes, I remember days of feasting with God and with God's people. I remember the joy of going into the temple. I remember the days of when I led the procession. I was the lead dancer, the head singer, the one that was first to walk in and enjoy. And I remember that. And now, instead of singing, he gets taunts. Instead of being surrounded by God's people, he's surrounded by enemies who say, where's your God now? Instead of feasting and enjoying the festival of God's goodness, he's eating his own tears for sustenance. It's not uncommon for us to do that. When normal suffering comes, when abnormal suffering comes, we tend to think back on the good old days, on the days that were before the suffering. And so the psalmist is showing, hey, I'm just human like you. I look back on all those times, and I miss them. Now, as much as he feels as if he's in a drought, the psalmist does take a moment here to stop, and he splashes his heart with the, with the refreshing waters of hope. Now, Understand, this is not a deep drinking of hope. This is just a little bit of a, a, little bit of a sip of cool water. He hasn't, he's not ending his grief here. As we'll see, he's going to continue on in his grief. But in the midst of his drought, he just takes a brief moment. He's had an open and transparent heart about his dryness, but then he turns to himself. So he's been speaking to God. God, you have forsaken me. God, I am out here by myself. I am dying of thirst. I am in the desert, and now he turns to speak to himself. And how important that is in the midst of our suffering. We speak honestly to God, and then we turn, and we, we preach the good news to ourselves. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now that phrase, hope in God, just means wait for God. So in this, he turns and he reminds himself, I don't, I know, this is self-talk in its truest form. He goes, I know I don't know what I'm, what, what I'm going through. I know I don't understand what God is doing. But self, wait in God. Self, wait for God. God will move, and when he moves, I will praise him again. I don't feel like singing right now. I don't necessarily feel like praising. My heart hurts. My heart's broken. But self, hope in God Wait in God, because I know there will be a day I will sing again. Today, harps and deaners don't feel like singing, probably. And yet there's a day, because of Jesus, that singing will commence again.
You and your suffering may not feel like praising, may not feel like singing, or maybe trying to praise in spite of pain. And yet there will be a day when you will praise free from pain. You will sing free from sorrow, and you will praise God again. So when, when today offers no hope, when today offers no motivation to sing, cast your mind to future grace. When you cannot see God's hand working, when you cannot see God's purpose, cast your mind forward because we know that God doesn't forget his promises. We know that even if we don't see his purpose right now, God hasn't forgotten his promises. He will do what he said and we will praise God again. Hardship and death may be our present reality, but the sunshine of resurrection is on the horizon. Now we get to movement number two. The psalmist has preached the good news to himself, but his sorrow is not over. He doesn't, he doesn't move on like the rest of us would say, right? He lingers a little bit longer just in the honest feelings of his grief and how great it is that he did that for us because, because he lingered a little longer, we have another picture of God being with his people in grief. And so, again, just another reminder that we shouldn't be pressing anyone or ourselves to move on too quickly. We should be willing to linger and to, to linger in grief for the sake of knowing God better. In the first movement, the first five verses of the psalm, he described his grief as a drought. But in the second movement, he describes his anguish as if he's drowning. It's a, it's a flip-flop from drought to drowning, from deserts to floods. He's just asked himself, why are you cast down, O, o my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He told himself to hope in God, and yet his grief returns. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Now, that's a little bit of a, a hard uh, phrase for us to understand. Even, even the best of Hebrew scholars debate what he meant by that. But here's what I think he means. Uh, when you go to Mount Hermon, it's part of the Golan Heights. It's the tallest peaks in Israel. Mount Mizar, directly translated, just means small hill. So what I think he's saying is, I remember you everywhere. I remember you on good days, and I remember you on bad days. I remember you from the heights to the lows. I'm on this journey, it's up and down, and I remember you. And sometimes that memory is not great. Sometimes that memory is not good. As, we're, as we'll see, sometimes he remembers God and it brings his heart pain because it's a reminder of how distant he feels from God. It's because of this memory of God, it's when he remembers God that suddenly he says, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. I've heard people try to explain this passage before, and they, they explain it with this positive. You see, he's, he's remembering God. He's just being washed over by the waves of God's grace and washed over by the warmth of compassion. That is not what he's saying here. Deep calls to deep is not positive. Abyss calls to abyss. That's the direct translation. The abyss of floodwaters, in, in direct translation, to the abyss of floodwaters. Your waves and breakers. He, he's basically saying, I feel like someone who's been left outside the ark. I feel like someone who's drowning under the waves of your wrath. 
Then he flip-flops again, and he says, he remembers that God commands his steadfast love, and so you see this battle inside of him. He feels like he's the recipient of God's wrath, and yet he says, I know that I have God's love. But then he goes and drifts again into grief in verses 9 and 10. If you're confused by this, welcome to the fallen world. This is what grief looks like in the fallen world. There's no perfect straight line. I'm perfect in my grief. No, it's moving, right? feel like I'm drowning under wrath. I feel like God has given me his love. And then back again, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I just wonder how many of us would be transparent to say that in our midst of our suffering that we just say that out loud to God. How many of us have ever felt freedom to just tell God, I feel like you've forgotten me? Or does all of our old backgrounds and our old, uh, you know, you hear those um, smug church ladies in the back of your head telling you to move on and, and, and praise God and worship, and so you don't give yourself freedom to do that. How many of us have ever just taken a moment, just even if it's a bad day, even if it's just a down day, maybe you've not gone through anything. My friends, I have a deflating soul just like everybody else does. There are just some days, just Mondays, right? You just wake up and you just feel like a deflated balloon. How often have you just started your morning and just honestly said, God, I don't feel like you're here and I feel like you have forgotten me. And then let God do the work from there. You don't have to bring yourself up to God's level. God has shown time and time again, he comes down to you. Sometimes we, try, we feel like we have to climb out of the pit in order to feel God's presence instead of humbling ourselves and saying, God, this is a pit way too deep for me to climb out of. I need you to slide in. That honors God because it is a dependent, honest, truthful prayer. There are pits in human life that we cannot climb out of. And so when we feel that, just saying, why have you forgotten me, does an immense amount of good because it shows that we are in desperate need for God to move. Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy as with a deadly wound in my bones? I mean, he talks about himself as if he's got a cancer inside of him. My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God. He longs for his rock back. The floodwaters have come. He's got nothing to cling on to. He feels like his rock is gone and he is drowning. Yet, he anchors himself again. He turns. He's spoken to God. He's told God his peace. And now he turns to preach the good news to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise Him, my salvation and my God. Once again, He shows us the importance of preaching the gospel to ourselves. My friends, it doesn't doesn't matter how crazy you look in the midst of your pain and your grief. Be conversational. Be conversational with God. Ask Him questions. Be conversational with yourself. How many of us have, just like we, we haven't necessarily felt the freedom to say, God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt the freedom to tell yourself, self, I know you're hurting, but I want you to wait in God. Have you just talked to yourself that way before? Again, it does an immense amount of good. It doesn't allow yourself to be passive in suffering. And we're not, even when God feels silent, we still have his word to be able to speak back into our lives. And so 
Be conversational in your grief. Be talking to yourself in this grief. And most importantly, be talking to God. Now we get to the final movement of the psalm. And to get to the final movement, you have to step into Psalm 43. Um, Again, to me, it seems apparently clear this psalm belongs with it. It ends in the same lyrics that were given in Psalm 42. Um, There's no indication it was written by anyone different. Um, And so we're going to treat it together as if it's the same psalm. So he goes from drought to drowning to feeling like he's defenseless. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He feels like he is taking up a castle inside of God, like God is his castle, and God has booted him out of the castle. As if there's a tornado on the horizon, so he goes into the storm shelter, but the storm shelter's locked, not letting him in. That's how he feels at this moment. Now, again, you might say, okay, somebody needs to correct this guy. But this isn't the moment for that. He's worshiping God even in this. My friends, I've asked the same question. It doesn't feel like there's any justice right now. Just to be completely honest and transparent. I mean, we've been through incredible season of injustices. Milo won't even have a trial. Where's the justice rolling down? Why didn't God protect the innocent victim? Why did God allow mocking to happen? I mean, that was the last thing the family needed in that season was for, was for people to blame them and to cast doubt on them and to, to blame them for their own daughter's condition. I mean, I'm, I'm sharing things that you guys might not have known, but that's the reality of what they've been through. It doesn't feel like closure, you know? It feels like the end of a chapter, but it definitely doesn't feel like the end of the story. Why do you allow the tragedy to happen in the first place? We know God's sovereign. We know that God has prevented many, many, many tragedies from happening. So why didn't God move? Are we defenseless? I mean, we have people in this room that have heart arrhythmias. We have people in this room that have had job losses. We have people in this room that have had deep, dark backgrounds of suffering. Where is God in all of that? Have we been rejected? These are questions. If you've ever asked those questions, the psalmist is asking those questions to God himself right now. The psalmist is saying that himself. Why did you let this happen? You promised protection, I don't feel protected. You promised peace, and yet all I have is turmoil. I mean, can we just get raw for a moment? A lot of reasons people leave and walk away from the faith is because the church doesn't equip them how to handle these questions like that. Far too often we act as if there's only peace, happy ever after. Everybody smile. 
And yet we have this beautiful promise that though we've been saved from sin and though we have this promise of future resurrection, let's just be honest. We're still in a dark and broken world. The final reality has not yet come, and it's still incredibly bitter. And let's just be honest with that. Let's prepare people for that. Coming to Jesus doesn't make everything good. It wipes away all your sinful stains. It wipes away your alienation from God. But it doesn't protect you from death itself sometimes. People still die in car accidents as Christians. There was a believer in Santa Cruz, California. A friend of mine pastors a church there. How many people die of getting eaten by a shark? I mean, this man, it, made, it made national news. Uh, one of my friends pastors of this church in Santa Cruz, California, uh, Santa Cruz Baptist Church, and they had a man that was coming to their church, a great and godly Christian, goes out surfing, and he's one of the few, few people. I mean, it's easier to get struck by lightning than to get eaten by a shark. And this man gets hit, and down he goes. He's gone. They haven't found him. Christian. Why? Well, we don't know. We don't know. That's the easy answer. And the psalmist doesn't answer, does he? He doesn't give an answer. He goes, I, now I know, God, that's not true. Now I know you've got purpose. And he doesn't say any of that. He just basks in the reality that there are things that still need closure in this world. I think if you were to sit down with him, he'd say, yes, I know there's closure coming. But just for the moment, he wants the freedom to say, it doesn't feel like there's closure. Uh, As you can imagine, that's very disorienting, right? Where's up from down, right from left? He doesn't know where he's at. He's lost in his thoughts. I can just imagine at this moment him saying, I feel like my refuge has rejected me and I feel like my God has broken his promises. And then suddenly he gets so wiped up in that, so taken away in the waves of that, that he just has to stop and pray and say, send your light and truth. I am lost. I don't know where I am. Send your light and truth. Let them lead me. Stop letting my thoughts lead me. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. There will be days you feel lost. There will be days that darkness closes in. There will be days up, can't be told from down, right, can't be told from left. It just makes no sense. And in those days, the psalmist tells us the importance of just whispering, send your light and truth. Send your light and truth. Lead me back to your presence. The psalmist knows that when God does that, which I think he fully trusts that God will, that there will be a restoration of joyful praise in God's temple. He will once again feast with God. One day... God will answer, God, and God did answer this psalmist prayer by sending his son, but long after the psalmist was dead, by sending his son to die for the sins of humanity.
He ends his lament, and this is so he doesn't it doesn't end on just this depressing note. He he again throws himself upon the mercy of God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Wait in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My friends, the the key to helping someone walk through grief is to help them say that to themselves, not for you to beating them over the brow with it. Lead them in, in seeing hope in God, yes, but don't beat them over the brow. This is the psalmist speaking to himself. When someone is handling grief well, you hear them talking to themselves good, talking to themselves the promises of waiting in God. Sometimes the things that you say just don't help. Just to be honest. There's no replacing Mila. The Harps could have eight other kids and Mila will not be replaced. And, and saying things like, well, at least they had other kids. That's not useful, helpful, beneficial, or true. Someone could have lost their job and you could say, well, at least you have a little bit of a balloon, a little cash balloon behind you. That, that doesn't, what does that do? What does that, how does that fix anything for someone? My friends, don't ask people to hope in things that aren't worthy of hope. Nick and Brittany shouldn't be hoping in future kids right now. People who have lost their job shouldn't be hoping in their cash funds right now. The only thing they should be hoping on is in God. And so if you see someone struggling with that and someone struggling and fighting to have hope in God, encourage that fight. Don't come with all your false hopes. They're broken reeds. And if they leaned on those things, they would fall and hurt themselves. My friends, in times of grief, don't talk about God's purposes or God's promises. Just be the visible presence of God right there. I don't think, contrary to a lot of reality, I don't think the first thing out of Jesus' mouth when we get to heaven is let me explain to you why you went through all the things that you did. I mean, we, we kind of hope in that, right? We're like, someday I'll know. I don't know if you'll even care to know. Because the reality is, is at that first moment in heaven, the first thing that is facing you is you are in the presence of a good and glorious God. What would Jesus do? That's a, I know it's been a cheesy bracelet since the 80s. I think Jesus would give a hug. I think Jesus would cry. I think Jesus... I mean, isn't that what he did with Martha? And I mean, here is, here is the man who can speak and raise the dead. He can say, don't worry, Mary and Martha, stop weeping, I've got this. He could do that, right? But he doesn't. Shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. Just to stand next to someone and cry, just to hold their hands. You don't have to say one daggum thing. Just a touch on the shoulder, a note with a psalm in it. When you don't have words, remember, the psalms have words that you can't say. Maybe just stop and say, hey, I just want to pray for you. Instead of telling them everything that you think they should hear, how about pray to God verbally in front of them so that they hear how you're asking God to be with them. He's the only one that can fix anything. The psalmist knows that he will praise God again. 
He knows that he will have joy yet. He knows that he will see salvation. God will not fail him. So even in the midst of this dark and depressing psalm, we have a reflection of a faith, a real faith that survives sorrow, a real hope that withstands heartache. Now, I, I'm out of time, but I, want to, I, want to, I don't want to bypass this. Where do we see Jesus in this psalm? I remember when I got to this point in my sermon prep, I've always got this point. Okay, where do I see Jesus? I just, I visibly wrote, nowhere. <laughs> big, big words. This, is, this psalm's too depressing, too broken to see Jesus. And then I went for a walk, took a few breaths, listened to this psalm in, in, a, in a, the corner room is a band that turns these psalms into songs, and it's great. And I'd listen to it, and I was like, wait a second. These sound like the words of Jesus almost. Here we have this writer who is a priest who serves in the presence of God. He somehow ended outside of the, out of the city, out of Jerusalem, away from the temple, away from God, away from the Father. He's open and he's honest. Something has happened in his life that has cast him out, that has exiled him. He's surrounded by mocking enemies. And he says something like, why have you forgotten me? My friends, do you not hear the words of the great high priest who was cast out of Jerusalem, led out to Golgotha, died outside of the camp of Israel, surrounded by taunting enemies, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, like the psalmist, he knows there will be a resurrection. I shall praise him again. And he did. Three days later, he rose from the grave and secured all of our praise, secured all of our resurrections, and guaranteed life forever for those who trust in him. Amen. Now, what's the point in bringing up that parallel? You do not have a high priest who does not know your suffering. You have a high priest who knows what it's like to be forsaken by God or feel forsaken by God. You have a high priest who's drank the bitter cup of suffering. You have a high priest who knows what it's like to stay up all night and weep, and so much so that his tear ducts burst and it starts bleeding. You have a high priest who knows what it's like to be unjustly criticized, to be mocked and taunted. You know what it's like to feel like there's no justice. I mean, this is the innocent son of God, never done one thing wrong, and he dies the death of a slave and a criminal, nailed to the cross because of some shoddy trial that the high priest put together. They found fake accusers and twisted his words, and he knew that every bit of what they said was wrong. And he died anyway because he knew it would bring peace to us. Our great high priest has walked through the fire first so that now we can walk through the fire with hope. He has drowned in the floodwaters first so that we could stay afloat. He has been vindicated through the resurrection. Mila will be vindicated at the resurrection. Justice will roll down. Grace will pour out. And even little Mila will one day say, 
I am going to praise him again. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that puts into words things that we can't hardly say, Father. It interprets our groaning and our pain. God, there's so many people suffering here today. God, I know that it is heavy for them. God, there's things going on that no one could ever feel, no one could ever understand, no one could ever describe, and there's things that people will try to fix that are unfixable, except by you. So God, we just pray, Lord, as we linger in grief just a moment longer, as we sit in the abyss of darkness, as we linger under the waters of sadness and sorrow, that we remember there is nowhere we can go without you. Where can we go from your presence? Even when we feel distant and forgotten by you, even when we feel outside of your presence and exiled, God, you are there. And so, Father, I pray that over Phil and over Teresa, over Nick and Brittany and over Iris and Richie today, that even in the abyss of their sorrow, God, that you will show them warmly and compassionately that you are there. God, be with them in their grief. Be with us as we walk through them. May we be the visible presence of Jesus. And we long for the day that Jesus will come back and that we will see him wipe away their tears, resurrect their granddaughter, and worship you together in a new heaven and a new earth. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.